So Hebrews chapter 3, starting from verse 16, it will be also on the screens behind me, or you may follow in one of the pew bubbles, which if you don't know, are available on the way in um, at the welcome desk, where you were welcomed by Sarah and Carol today, um, also on your device, but yes, on the screen behind me. So starting from verse 16 of chapter 3, and going all the way to chapter 4, verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declare an oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So if you have a Bible with you, do keep it open to Hebrews 3 and 4. Really helpful as we look through this today, we're going to move around those that chapter in a bit. Um, I'm going to explore this idea of rest and maybe 
at this time of year, your diary looks a little bit like a unicorn vomited a rainbow all over it. Maybe it's just the stage of life you're in with kids and you haven't slept in days or for hours and you're just absolutely exhausted and you come to the end of the year like we are and you think life's just getting on top of you and it's all very overwhelming. We cry rest, but rest feels a little bit elusive, doesn't it, sometimes? And it's not a new thing either. Um, Augustine, a theologian, pastor and quite a big sinner actually, in the year 400, wrote a book called Confessions, still in print today actually, and he wrote the very beginning of this book. You have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Way back in the year 400, Augustine struggled with this idea of rest, soul rest, heart rest, mind rest, rest for his body, rest along the road of life. And his great insight, Augustine had, was that this rest we feel and ache for at times is a desire, a deep signal of our desire for God. Because we see in the story of the Bible that God has built not only work, but rest into the fabric of creation, you see. Rest. Let's think about it. What I want you to do for two minutes, what's your ideal day of rest? Not the day of the week, I realise I should have worded that very wrong, but what would, what would the most wonderful one day of your whole life restfully be? Just think about it yourself if you're on your own, talk to those around you, two minutes, just think about rest, what's the best ever day of rest you could ever have? What would it be? How would it begin? How would it end? Two minutes, just rattle around, talk to those around you. What would it be? So last week, last week in Hebrews, we began and we saw that we have a temptation to drift away from Jesus, who's God's better revelation, drift away from Jesus to other things. And the author points out, his main idea is that there's a temptation to drift for the people he's writing to towards angels. God's staff team. But angels can't offer the salvation or revelation or assurance that Jesus can. And between then and now, he's gone on to make the point that Jesus is also better than Moses. So in chapter 3, verse 6, we learn that Jesus is even more faithful than Moses was. And he uses the image of a building to describe why and how. Jesus owns the building. He's the builder, whereas Moses was just like the landlord for a time. And then he gets to this new way that Jesus is better, and our big idea for today is this. The rest that Jesus offers is better than the rest provided by the promised land. We'll unpack that. But the rest Jesus offers is better than the rest provided by the promised land. Say it another way, think of it differently. The rest we long for in life is found in a person who can lead us through life, who knows all about our life. And then when life is done, we will get the rest we so desperately want in a way that a holiday on a sunny beach can never quite do. Because there, we enter into God's place of rest, rest from sin, from the weariness of life and sickness. So here's the outline that we're going to work through today. First of all, hear the caution. There's a caution here in chapter 4, 1 and 2, to take seriously those who have gone before us, so none of us will be found to have fallen short and not get into this rest either. Then we have to know there's something better. There is a rest that still remains for God's people, not a land, but entering into the nature and space where God himself dwells. 
and then understand the method that God uses with you and me to help us get there, and that's his word. And then finally, the author of Hebrews wants to leave us with confidence. So have confidence. Because of the great one himself, Jesus, who understands our weaknesses and our unbelief and what life is like, Jesus really is ready and willing to give you grace and mercy every step of the way as you travel on with him. So hear the caution, know there's something better, understand the method, and then have confidence. So in verse 16 of chapter 3, the author comes to the end of his argument and we see that Jesus is not just more faithful than Moses, as we said, but the place Jesus leads us to is better than anything Moses or even Joshua, who came after Moses, could get them to. So who is this Moses character? Well, recall, in the biblical story, Moses led God's people out of Egypt into a land to live as God's people under his loving rule and care. And part of this life they were to find in God was to find rest. It's a pretty neat offer, considering they've been slaves for 400 years who never owned anything and could never rest. And God comes and says, follow me, I'll give you rest. Except the road to this new life with God, this land, well, it looked very unlike what they imagined. Remember, if you were here, we preached through Leviticus and Numbers and it draws some of this out. New challenges, hardships. They had to undo a dependence on an evil king and learn how to trust a good king instead. Unbelief in God through visible obstacles, a lack of faith, trusting God was good and on their side, kept coming at them day by day. And so in verse 316 of Hebrews, we read, it wasn't that they didn't hear God's voice, they heard and rebelled from God's voice. Our author in Hebrews is asking this in the form of a question to really help us understand, to draw the significance out for us. Who was it that heard and rebelled, he says? With whom was God angry for 40 years? With whom did he swear they would not enter his rest? And the answer time and time again is who? Oh, it's the team that came out of Egypt. Those ones. They didn't follow God into the land he gave them. They were the ones who disobeyed and rebelled. I get it. And as much as they could trust God in one moment, faith in God seemed too hard and unhelpful to trust him with a new life. And so again and again, they rebelled from God. In fact, 3.19 says they lived in unbelief. What does that mean? It means there was no faith or repentance back to God when they wandered or struggled. Instead of running to God with the burdens of life, they rebelled away from him. And his point is that you can't enter into God's promise of rest if you don't trust the promises of God to get in. After all, the message that God told them is not the problem. It's the hearts of the people. You see, God is offering them good news, chapter 4, verse 2. Good news, which is salvation from a weary life to persevere with faith towards a heavenly homeland. All by faith in Jesus. And that's great. In fact, in 4, verse 2, it's of great value, that message. And so because it's so valuable, we're urged, encouraged, to be careful that we don't fall short. Fall short means to miss out. And he's warning us with their example to push us, not away from God, but towards faith in Jesus, you see. Appealing to the sacrifice and the blood and the obedience of Jesus, not ours. So hear the caution. Not to live like you follow Jesus when you don't actually have faith in Jesus. Because that's the fall short to identify someone who knows Jesus, but to not have your identity in Jesus. Be careful. 
But of course, he also wants to encourage us, not just sit in a warning. So he says, no, there's something better. Because in 4 verse 3, the promise of rest still stands. And just to make sure that we get that this rest place he's talking about isn't going to be found in an extra week's holiday or a long weekend, he draws us back to the biblical vision of rest and how it's closely related to creation and God's rescue of his people out of Egypt. Explore this with me just for a moment. See, we aren't just saved from something in the Bible. The Bible story says we're saved from sin, but we're saved to something. And one of the blessings that we're saved to is belonging to God and rest. So Hebrews 4.4 draws this out. It says, On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Now that's a direct link back to the Genesis account of creation when we first learn about God's vision for rest. We translate it as Sabbath in our Bibles. Sabbath quite literally means clocking off. Stop working. And we see it. God clocks off, doesn't he, from his work of creation on the seventh day. And then on that seventh day, it never ends. It's just this perpetual, ongoing day of rest. God lives in perfect, permanent rest. Which means God's vision for rest is much bigger than Australian author Nick Dyrenfirth. I was reading his book a while ago and he says, if an Australian male had been charged with the task of planning God's week of creationist activities, the the Sabbath seventh day might have witnessed a boozy weekend gathering of mates around a barbecue. You see, God rests. That's his vision. And he settles then his people into his land in the Genesis account too. Settled is another word for rest. The picture God wants to see is that we're settled and we're restful under God. It's the vision of a flourishing life, settled and rested. But this resting and being settled is soon spoiled with sin. And eventually things get so bad for God's people, they're slaves in Egypt who can't rest in an unsettled place, Egypt, where life is terrible. And so Moses comes along, and through him, one of God's promises is, I'll lead you to myself where you can work and rest under me. In fact, one of the Ten Commands, God legislates rest because he has to teach his people now not only to work under him, but rest with him, you see. How many of you find it hard to rest? How many of you find it hard to have a day off and you have a week of holidays and you feel like on day seven, I just started to rest and I have to go back to work on Monday? Something in that. Eventually, after failing to have this rest in this land, as 4 verse 8 says in Hebrews, Jesus comes along. Jesus comes along and makes the claim that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of clocking off. He's the Lord of rest. What does that mean? With him, you can finally be settled and present with God and saved to that future. So Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you lots to do. No, I'll give you rest. But then as well as giving us a new way of living, Jesus says, here's how you follow me too. Learn from me, the restful God. He says, my yoke, the stuff in life now, is actually light and easy to carry compared to a life without me. Now Jesus gives us rest. But as Hebrews 4 verse 9 makes clear, there still remains another rest to come. So he emphasizes the word today. It's not that today is a day of rest in its fullest sense of salvation. 
It's that today is a day you can respond to God's invitation and good news of promised rest to come. The point, Jesus is the better rest to come. Take seriously this. Take seriously. Hear the warning. Take seriously. Heaven and hell are at stake if you do not hear with faith what is going on here. God is inviting you into his rest, as 4 verse 11 says, make every effort to enter so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. How do we make every effort? What does that look like? 4 verse 2, believe the good news of God he's offering you. But then to help us remain... God has a way of cutting away unbelief so we continue in and not fall short. Understand the method God uses to help us get in. This is great. I love running. I love running. And one of the most disappointing parts of running is when you look at how many calories you burned after running. And maybe you've done that and think, I'm going to burn off you know, all these calories I've eaten today and you run and six-kilometer run will probably do 450 calories, which is literally just a double cheeseburger from Mackin's. You've got to run a lot to get rid of that. But the thing about calories and, and running is that when I do a long run, I put more calories into my body to keep me going, right? Not double cheeseburgers or anything. But the author wants us to understand here that God's Word is chock full of calories to keep us going to make every effort. And these are some very famous verses. If you've been around the church for a while and read your Bible, someone has probably quoted to you uh, Hebrews 4 talking about God's Word but it's actually in the context written to help us strive towards God's rest in Jesus, to keep going. You see, the problem in the wilderness was their hard hearts. The solution is that God's word is going to keep your heart in check. So, to pick up some language of Hebrews, if we're to avoid drifting away from chapter 2, verse 1, then we must hold something, chapter three fourteen, something strong, something that will allow us to maintain a steady course. So we'll enter God's rest. And one of those ways is the Word of God. The Word of God is used to stop our hearts becoming hard. That's why it's said to be like a two-edged sword. Cuts both ways. Deeply encouraging. Oh yes, dauntingly severe. It's one of those moments you hear the Bible and you go, yeah, no, I can't really do that, can I? That's a bit harsh. Can God's Word really have that effect? Is it just hyperbole here? But this has always been the intent with God's word. You see, one of, one of the prophets named Isaiah wrote to help God's people understand how God's word is meant to undo us, to wreck us a little bit. Our desires, our vision for life, our values. He says this in, in chapter 55 of Isaiah. He says, communicating to God's people, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, God says. Then he says, God's word will help to accomplish something. And the whole point Isaiah drives at is change. After being undone, after being confronted with God and his word, God actually wants to rebuild you. Listen to the change language here. He says, instead of thorn bushes will be a cypress. And instead of myrtle, sorry, instead of a briar, myrtle will come up. He's using a plant picture. He's saying, God's word turns a sour sob into a gum tree. Only God's Word can do that. It's what it's meant to do. It's meant to judge and point us. And judging is is often a bad word today. See, in Hebrews it says God's Word judges us. But unlike a judgment to look down on someone and shame them, God's Word seeks to lift us up, to make us more human, more alive, to keep going to enter that rest. It's this discerning eye. 
a discerning voice. Can you see how God, how interested God is in sifting our unbelief in you and me? Before it gets to our heart, before we follow the example of the wilderness generation. So know the method God uses. But also, he doesn't want to leave it there. The author wants us to have confidence here. You see, we don't just have God's good word cutting our hearts and encouraging us at times. We let it have the effect so that we would go somewhere. What is this? We go to God's throne of grace and mercy and have confidence in that. And this is where it ends. Next week, we'll talk more about priests. But for now, just know the work of a priest was to go between God and people giving them access. That's it. Before we look at the what and how that works, Hebrews wants us to see the who. Who is this great high priest standing before God and humanity in the heavenly places? With the Son of God himself, Jesus. When the Bible talks about Jesus as a priest, most often it's emphasizing his human nature. 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weakness. He understands our weakness. He's been tempted in every way as we are. And if you've been following the claims of Hebrews these last few weeks, that's an incredible, remarkable statement that the Son of God, who is the better revelation than angels and Moses, actually gets life that you and me kick around in day by day. How can can this sinless Son of God understand what it's like to be tempted? In the context, how could Jesus be tempted to walk away from God like God's people have been? The fact that he is God and man together is exactly our hope. Because if Jesus never gave in, he knows temptation far more longer and intensely than any of us. The weightlifter at the Olympics, they win the gold medal by holding the weight the longest, correct? Unless I've missed something, that's how it works normally. You run the fastest, you run the furthest, you swim the quickest, that's how it works. And it's only the winner that knows exactly what it's like to feel that pain and agony for exactly however many seconds or minutes. And so too with Jesus. He understands the pain and agony of temptation exactly like you and me, but for longer because he never gave in along the way. He is the champion, you see. And what every temptation is doing to us is asking us not to choose a vision of life under God. And the greatest temptation Jesus faced was the temptation to not suffer on the cross. Which means Jesus is not only an example who emphasizes but he's our saviour from that too. And so if you are here today and you are tempted to abandon your faith in Jesus, if life is dulling you to the goodness of God for you, know this, whatever temptation you face, Jesus came to get you, to show that there is a God who loves you infinitely more than what's on offer in the other side of temptation. And yes, there's effort sometimes in running the race of life. Hebrews 12 speaks of that. But there is a great promise on offer. In 4 verse 10 it says, those who enter God's rest also rest from their works. And so I want to draw you now to two little phrases that I promise will be helpful for you as you navigate the challenges of living in a tricky, complex, busy, unrestful world found in these two chapters. Let us hold firmly and let us approach boldly. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us approach God's throne. 
that has grace and mercy with confidence. Whatever trials you find yourself in, like God's people did in in the temptation to have a hard heart towards his promise and turn away from God and his rest, God is there meeting you with timely help. Notice it says, we may approach in our time of need, in verse 16, to help you persevere to the end. Just think back to where we started today for a moment. It began with fear in 3.16 to make sure we heard and didn't rebel, but because of Jesus, it need not end with fear, but with confidence. So we take seriously the warning in Hebrews. And we do that, we hold firmly to God's word and Jesus and we approach boldly because only Jesus can save us from walking away. So come, confident today, weary sinner as you are, come knowing that all the resources you need for life are found in him, are found in Jesus. Yes, your calendar might be busy. Your nights might be sleepless. Your kids causing you anxiety because they're grown up and then doing who knows what. But in your time of need, Jesus holds out a future rest and the promise of mercy and grace today. As you fumble your way through the life, your life, he is there. I want to end with a quote from John Newton, who was a pastor, and he wrote to a friend talking about rest and the weariness of life. And he said these words, The Lord might be pleased to indulge us with comforts here in this world. Still, this is not and cannot be our rest. So may God give you rest from a busy calendar, sleep for tired parents, but know that every moment in this life brings us nearer to a place in which no sin or sorrow or disturbance can enter. Imperfections are gone, and then from that vantage point, you will look back on your life with Jesus, arm around you, and you'll say, you did all things well, And with that comfort, may you finish the race with joy and hope for your tired heart. Let's pray. Merciful God, you get us, you know us, and Jesus came to give us the greatest rest we could ever need. Here now, grace and mercy. Not yet a future secured by what he has done in which nothing can spoil it. Father, our hearts are made for you and they're restless until we find rest in you. Give us today that rest found in Jesus, secured. Thank you, Jesus, that you are so good and so much better than anything we can imagine. Amen. Hey, and as you're having coffee today, why not share with someone what's encouraging about a Jesus who understands our temptation? Another way, what do you love about the fact that Jesus knows all the grit of life? I love it because he knows what it's like to endure longer than I do. You know, I give in to temptation. Jesus is like, hey, I know what it's like. I've done it longer than you. Keep going. It's okay. I've got you. Anyway, think about that. It'll be on the screen afterwards too. But let's sing to our great restful God right now. Thank you.